he was like, he's like, if you think you can just drop Dynamo DB as in as a replacement of something like a SQL database, he's like, you will be very unhappy because it will not work and it'll be very non-performant or it'll be very expensive. That makes me feel way better because that's always kind of been my thought is that going that way into a document database doesn't seem like where you float into. It's where you would be starting out at. And I've never been in a position where I know what I'm doing up front to start there. So yeah. it's always so ever changing and I never know. So anyway, databases, what's up with that? <laughs> what's up with those things? You're listening to Working Code and now your hosts who wish they were Boolean. So the next time they're wrong, it's only by a bit. Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 40. And on today's show, we're going to talk about databases and transactions. And hopefully we can come up with a better title for it than that. But as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. And Carol, you get to go first. Good, because I have two wins. No, okay. one. just one. No, no, we're going with two. All right, fine. Fine. I am a redhead and a ginger, right? So I burn. That's a, in the that's sun. not a triumph, Carol. I'm <laughs> okay, it's a triumph of my life. Y'all leave me alone. I burn. <laughs> like I get sunburned all the time, so I have to go to a dermatologist. And anyway, so Monday they found the spot and they were like, "Oh, we're just gonna go ahead and take this off to be safe." They're like, "We'll tell you in two weeks, like if it's anything to worry about or not." So they called the day and was like, "Hey, congratulations! You don't have cancer still." So, that's nice. Yay! I still don't have cancer because it's mm. really bad for gingers and redheads. So have to be very careful so, about everything. Wait a minute, it, ginger and redhead are two different things. Yeah, I mean the whole super fair skin part of the ginger, but you know the uh, red. I always just assumed they, they were like ginger was like just slang for redhead. Oh no, no, you have to be really white and very fair skinned and very redhead, and you have to steal people's souls. I do know some folks who are. <laughs> African American who are redheads. Really? Yeah, I wow. do. Yeah, I do. I know. Actually, know mm-hmm. three people. I, I think I live seen in this that. area that I'm friends yeah. with. So they are African Americans. They have red hair, but they wow. obviously are not light skinned. So yeah, I, I agree with what she says. But interesting. She, I, I think ginger kind of covers both. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Because yeah. I have two gingers in my house, and they both have stolen everyone's soul. Yeah, we're evil. What can I say? Yeah. Not evil. It's just what you do. It's just right? what we do. It's by nature. Yeah, it's a passive equality. <laughs> can I use that when we play D and D? I'll be sure. a ginger. Okay. Yeah, that that will be your passive quality. Doesn't, doesn't cost you an action. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a free so, offer. My second win is I have been writing a whole bunch of tests this week and I am just like rocking, mocking. And I didn't like, sometimes it just doesn't work for me. And sometimes I can't mock like different libraries I've installed or different packages, but I have been able to literally mock everything I've tried doing, which is great because now I don't have to rely on any dependency to any network layer or to any database layer, because literally I've just mocked every call to something. And once I've figured out how to use it, I feel like I just write through so many tests so quickly because there's not a lot of thought to it. It's nice. more of just go get it done. And I'm just, I'm loving it. So yay, mock it. Woohoo. Nice. Yeah, I need to get my testing velocity up so that I can keep the the momentum there. Yeah. And I feel like just when I start to get the hang of things, they I get moved on to something else. And it's like, oh, well, okay. Got to set that aside. Yeah. yeah. Once you fall behind, it's hard to catch back up on it. Yep. So. It's good on a new project because there is no catching up. You start there with it. So, yay. Cool. Wins good for me. You. All right. What about you, Adam? You're up next. 
Yeah, I'm going to go with the Triumph this week. I've been having some fun with QR codes. We're all pretty familiar with QR codes, I think. But No, Adam, what's a QR code? Tell me more. <laughs> it's, they're referred to as 2D barcodes, which I find interesting. Because does that imply that like the barcode on all your groceries is a 1D barcode? Right? And, and I think like, so. But two-dimensional no means flat. Anyway, like I don't want to get into that whole mm-hmm. thing. It's just a semantic thing. Whatever. I've been playing with QR codes and they're fun. They're those the barcodes that are like on your UPS package or whatever. They're square and they have lots of little like pixels in them. Um, and if you didn't know, they have error correction built into them and you, and you can set like an error correction level. And the so the higher you turn on the error correction, just the more data that ends up in there, right? You have a bunch of like, I don't know exactly how it works, but I imagine there's like parity bits or whatever that double check things. So it just means more data in your QR code. But it also means that if part of that QR code were to get like scratched or whatever, then it, the, the likelihood of still being able to get a, a successful scan out of it is still very high. And from what I understand, that was intentionally done so that it was intentionally built that way or specified that way so that people could do what I've been doing this week, intentionally like abuse that QR code by putting like a logo in the center of it. And so, yeah, so I'm making like branded QR codes with like, so I have my customers are universities. And so I'm putting like university logos in the center of these QR nice. codes and they have work? a nice little stroke around them. Oh yeah. They're gorgeous. Nice. Uh, and I've, it's just been so fun. And it, it feels very, if, when you look at it, it's, it, it's got that, that feel of like, this is impressive. This is polished. Right. But it's so easy to do. And so that's just, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm enjoying that. And so this and, is your first time working with them? No, but okay. this the other nice thing about this is we're going to in our product, we're going to use our own logo by default and then upsell. You can put in your oh, logo instead. So this yeah. is a nice little like It's the mm. little you're not watermarked, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Branded. Yep. Yeah. I like so it. So that'll be a nice little upsell and additional money for the company probably and yeah, and I'm not, excited about it. Get your name out there. Yeah. So I was looking one time into the logic that goes into a QR code because I wanted to play around with them a while back. And all I could find was Java libraries that do it. And I was like, come on, I got to be able to write this in ColdFusion and build an image. And I looked at one of the libraries that implements it in Java and it's like 3,000 lines of math and bit manipulation. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm, no, Pass. <laughs> backing out of the room. <laughs> yeah, I built a little open source project called QR Toad, mm-hmm. which built this kind of thing. It was, but it was like iText. So, I mean, all I did was like put mm. an interface for Cold Fusion on that. So, yeah, I wasn't going to write the whole math to build the thing. Was that iText or iText with a T on the end? iText with a T on the end. Okay. It's part of and the that's a, like a Java library, library or something. Right? Yeah, it's a, yeah, Java library. It, it, it's used for building PDFs, but it also had like a sub library that built QR codes, mm-hmm. which I just. Doing introspection on the jar, I said, okay, it does this too. So nice, nice. Yeah. So the way that I'm doing these, I mean, if we want to get into this architecture of it, it's kind of a fun little cloud thing. Let's do it. So I have an ALB route. ALB is the application load balancer, which detects based on host name and path and everything that it should be doing a QR code. And from there, it forwards the request onto Lambda. So in Lambda, I'm running a Node.js app. And it grabs the information out of the URL. So all the data that we want to encode in the QR code is coming in the URL Mm -hmm. and including which logo to overlay. And then uses that node library, creates a QR code, overlays the appropriate logo, and will write it out to S3 and then return 
the URL of the, like the public URL of that image on S3 all to the original user in well under a second. And that is if it has to generate the image, if the image has already been created. Because what happens is when that request comes in with the data, I take the data that I'm embedding in the QR code and the logo because they could be potentially collisions with the same data, but different logos. So combine the two, MD5 hash it, and that is actually the name that I save it with on uh, S3. So if that Hmm. file name already exists in my S3 bucket, then I just return that S3 URL real quick. And that happens in like double digit, like very low double digits, like 20 to 30 milliseconds. So I'm super happy with the speed of this thing. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So I'm kind of riding high on that one. So uh, I'm just happy to be talking about it. So Ben, what do you got going on? I'm going to go with the triumph. I've been uh, inspired. (laughs) I've been inspired by Carol's adventures with AWS and uh, Brian's talking about AWS. And I've long wanted to start learning more about message queues. So I this morning downloaded a bunch of AWS SQS jar files and uh, started trying to read from and write to uh, an SQS in uh, Cold Fusion and Lucy CFML. So proud of you. Yeah, it's pretty, as I've said, I think on previous episodes, some of the biggest mistakes that I've made in building application architectures is making everything synchronous. And really, I could have avoided a lot of pain by putting a queue in between some mm-hmm. requests and some responses. It, it's not a super simple change, right? You have, re- you have to really change the way you think about processing data and how mm-hmm. people look at that data over time, how you know when things are done, what happens if they're not done, what happens if they fail, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot to be considered, but just being able to instantiate this instance of the SQS client and being able to write and read a message, I feel like it's a huge first step. It's going to be a a much larger step than trying to figure out how to actually consume a queue as part of an ongoing long-lived application first step. So I'm pretty excited about that. Next step, you need SNS. Yes. The SNS stuff looks pretty cool, too. It is. It is. So the thing that kind of drove me nuts for a long time with CFML was the lack of asynchronous interaction. And in some ways, I think it was like sort of a victim of its own success. Like early on, there was a not API gateway. What was that called? Event Um, gateway. Event Gateway, yes, thank you. API Gateway is an AWS product that I also loathe. Um, but <laughs> Why? Oh, my God. Okay, another after show, after yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Event Gateway was very useful, but I think that it was a little ahead of its time, and so not it didn't get a whole lot of use, and so it stopped being developed, and then it just became this, like, pardon the the, the pun here since we were just discussing this, but like the redheaded stepchild of the, the platform. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it seems so out of brand with everything else that was Cold mm-hmm. Fusion because right. everything yeah. Cold Fusion was super easy. Like you want an application, yeah. just, here's an index file. Like you sure. want a database query, here's a CF query tag. And then it was like, you want to implement an event gateway. Like you have to have special types of libraries and then you have to have configuration yeah. files and they have to be registered in the administrator. And you're like, yeah, this yeah. is so different than everything else. Absolutely. But and like I said, I think that it was powerful, but it was ahead of its time. And as a result, nobody used it. And as a result, yeah. it got like, it fell behind and I just kind of got forgotten. Time. I just think it was out of sync. Well, well, so, but think about this. These days, pretty much any modern platform, if you talk to somebody and you tell them, okay, you need to do like a Redis pub sub, right? And, and like publish messages across nodes or something like that. Anybody can do that. Hooking that up in CFML would require like 
using a Java library and dealing with all the difficulties of that. Some Java libraries work really well with CFML. Some of them, it's like, okay, here's the jar, figure it out for yourself. And I, I hate that situation personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently they do have the run as async. So, yeah. What yeah. I mean, I, I moved significantly away from CFML in the last, like maybe five years ago. And so the last couple of releases, I'm not whatever. I, I don't have my toe in that pool anymore. But. I feel like we just hijacked Ben's triumph. No, this okay. is, it's all, no, it's because <laughs> I'll tell you, like the, the big mental block that I have is again, how do I, it's one thing to read and write from a message queue as this, mm-hmm. like a one time action, but to sit there and pull the queue with long polling technique and have that run in a thread that's not blocking the overall application, but then also like what happens if that thread dies? Mm-hmm. Because it gets uh, terminated. It's okay. Well, right, but what there has to be something <laughs> watching that thread to make sure that the thread mm-hmm. can respawn. Right. And, and uh, you know, I, who watches when you're in a watch node me. application? <laughs> it seems so much easier, I guess, because there's not this whole concept of threads. It's like there's just one event tick or yeah. event loop, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So I, I tried looking at the Ordis guys, the Coldbox guys have this whole async library that they do with with the uh, tasks and queues and thread pools and stuff. It's very complicated, it seems like. Didn't help you much? Sounds I, like it uses well, I was just curious as Java Util Concurrent yeah. with the Yeah, it uses a bunch of concurrency and future stuff under the hood, but I, I think part of it too is like I just don't know what the code would look like I don't know. It's weird. It's like, I'd want to have, I'd want to have separation in my code between like, here's, here are the mechanics of pulling the queue and dealing with queues. And then here's the mechanics of processing the message. Mm-hmm. And I almost want those to be two totally separate things so that if I wanted to change the queuing mechanism, I'd still have all the logic that processes the thing that I'm trying to do, but maybe doesn't necessarily have to deal with the queue. And I don't know. I'm just trying to separate, you know, separate out the IO from the business logic. Mm-hmm. What's your use case of this, though? Anything. I don't know. Everything that takes this processing R&D time. Or? Well, because I have so little hands-on experience with queues, I don't know. I don't have an instinct for when to use them. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do a lot of image processing and generating of PDFs, generating of zip files, things that could probably be done with a, with a queue. Sure. I'm assuming. <laughs> I got to learn it and then I'll figure out how to yep. use it. Where to yeah. plug it in. It's a little yeah. bit of a chicken and egg problem. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. So what about, uh, what about you, Tim? What do you got going on? So my triumph is not particularly technical again. Sorry. I've been waiting for years to watch Hamilton. But I'm right here. No, not you, Carol. <laughs> Hamilton. Live and in person. I, I want to watch the Broadway <laughs> play version of Hamilton. So like a we friend of mine. Do. Yeah. A friend of mine, he had. He has like season tickets to the Fox and uh, get me tickets. And so in 2020, April, we were supposed to go see Hamilton. And of course, you know what happened Mm -hmm. in the spring of 2020. (laughs) Right, right. So, but so we're going tomorrow. We're going to see, finally, we're going to see Hamilton. But what's even awesomer is that it's the same time as Dragon Con. So we get to see we're Yay! not going to drag up, but we get to see everyone. We can see the crazies. Yay. Yeah, all the, all the crazy all people the in the cosplays. Yeah. So, but on the technical side, so all, I talked about last week, I'm finally delivering all the boring legal info to the parties that need it. So it's just a part of 
I take the requirements from the users and I bring them to the engineers. No, it's not even that. <laughs> it's like these deals. Like, so some, it's like if you aren't a hundred percent delivering the product, like sometimes you're tying in with the product and that product is a federally regulated institution, like a bank. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that you oh, have absolutely. to go through. Yeah. And they have to like, they ask you questions that have absolutely nothing because they just have this boiler template stuff that just says, Hey, what do you do when you do this? I'm like, we don't do this ever. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, so the consumer, what will the consumer face? Like none of this stuff that you're suggesting. So Not it's applicable. Like, yeah, exactly. And a, so yeah, just going through that. So that's, Got through that today because I have like besides my notebook and my inbox zero, I have my I flag stuff when it comes in says importance and my little flag on Outlook that says this is important. Got to answer this. Got through this today. So, so wait, does inbox zero not count if it's already like if you flag it as important? That means you'll yeah, come back to it. That yeah, still lets you sure. get to inbox yeah, there, zero. There, there, there's some things that you are, are in, yeah. tricking the system. I, I am. I am. Yeah, I am. So it's like my inbox is zero, but I do have things flagged as like, this is really important <laughs> and I can't handle this right now. So you just, lost, got through, you just lost a cool point. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> okay. Well, since Tim hasn't had enough opportunities to mention Postgres lately, we thought that today we would talk about <laughs> <laughs> databases and transactions and Postgres. <laughs> fanboy. Fanboy. So awesome. So actually, Ben, you uh, proposed this topic because you heard something somewhere else and it made you have feelings. And so tell us what you want to talk about. Yeah. So the other day I was listening to a podcast about MongoDB. I think it's MongoDB's official podcast. I don't know if anyone does this, but sometimes I'll go into my podcast app and I'll just search for random technologies like MongoDB or Redis or ColdFusion. It's kind of like shocking how few things come up for technology related. I I don't know if it's just because the Apple podcasting app is terrible or because podcast searches in general are terrible, but there's just just not that much content. I don't know. Anyway, so I, I came across this MongoDB podcast and I started to listen to a bunch of them. And there was one that was talking about, this guy was talking about like everything that's changed in MongoDB in the last 10 years. Because when MongoDB first came out, it had a bunch of uh, hurdles that had to overcome around security and availability, kicking the tires, that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the things that the guy talked about was building transactions into the database, like you would normally expect in a relational database management system. A transaction being that I can perform two separate operations on the database in an atomic way, meaning that they both happen successfully or they both don't happen successfully. There's not like this one worked, but one didn't kind of an idea. Because they're both in the same transaction. Because they're both in the same transaction. So they either both work or they both roll back. And uh, he was saying that the guy who was building the transactions into MongoDB was complaining that he was spending all this time on a feature that 90% of developers will never use. And that struck me as this like crazy concept that 90% of the people who work with Mongo databases have no need for transactions. And it made me think about my use of transactions and just how I think about guarantees around writing data to a database that I don't know if I'm crazy or if I just am so far off from understanding how a document database changes the way people develop. Mm -hmm. And he was also talking about in that episode how 
document databases are so much easier to use because they match more closely the data model that developers are already using in their applications. Mm-hmm. And it was, again, one of these things where like, uh, I can definitely think of use cases where that's true, where I have a large, complicated document, uh, like an object in memory, and maybe it would be nice to just jam that into a database. But for the most part, I'm dealing with very small chunks of data that actually do very closely match my relational database tables. And I don't know, I just, I, I don't, maybe I don't have enough understanding of how document databases work, but I think there's, I don't know if I'm just not understanding how people think about transactions and automaticity. Is that the right? I saw that word and I was like, uh, how do you even say that correctly? Yeah, that's going to be a hard one. And so, so the thing that they always talk about, that people always talk about with document databases is that you can form your document to match your query patterns so that we're in a relational database you might have to pull data from multiple tables. In a document database, you can have those co-located within a single document. And then when you go to read that out of the document database, it's just one request. Yeah. But so I'm going to jump in here a little yeah, bit. Sure. The, the thing that I've struggled with document databases for the longest time, and, and this is the primary reason that I am not a heavy document database user, is that I have a lot of data to work with and a lot of different angles that I need to look at it from, right? Events and reporting and registration is a lot different than the reporting. And so in a, the management of the data is sort of a yeah. third angle you might want to look at it through. Right. And in and that's just like one module of my database here. So repeat that times N modules or whatever. The My understanding of the document flow is like you get the document and it, it has everything you need for the thing you're working on and then you update the document when you're done with it, right? And that's just not, that doesn't seem like it would hold true in the data that I use in my app, right? Like I need to update this table over here and this table over here and maybe create a bunch of relationships. And it's just like, it's not how I think. Right. So, and so I think that to me, like that makes your automaticity and, and transactions questioning here very relatable to me. Like I agree because, well, I think that if you're, application architecture is the type that you just grab a document and you modify it if you need to and then write it back and that's all you're ever doing, then that fits the document database model really well. And yeah, you probably don't need transactions. But if you are updating multiple related documents and you need them to only update if the other one also succeeds, then that's what a transaction is for. And I can see how that would be uh, a, a an infrequent use case for document database heavy users. But I the thing <laughs> that I struggle with related, is like, right? what is the use case? Like, I still can't wrap my head around when is that a, a better fit? Well, maybe that's, I'm kind of projecting my own usage onto what this guy was saying about MongoDB, mm-hmm. but it could be that his statement is presupposing that people are choosing MongoDB for very specific use cases. So maybe Mm -hmm. his viewpoint is, well, if you're going to use a document database for things that are very good for document databases, then you don't need transactions. Right. And I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. But if you look at a document database as not a drop-in replacement, but I think a lot of people choose a document database, not necessarily because they have document-oriented data, just because like, they want a database that doesn't have a strict schema and they want to be able to create new collections yeah. really easily. And like, they want it to be web scale. They, well, of course, it has, has to be web scale. <laughs> and, and like, I, I have to imagine those people 
have to have transactions because they're not necessarily dealing with data that's really purely yeah. geared towards documents. Right. I, I think that you can shoehorn any application into a document database, right? Like it's just data. It happens to be schemaless so that you can modify your schema over time or whatever. But I still struggle to see like, what is the, what is the right word that I'm looking for here? Like the, the perfect use case, the example, like the, if your application uses this sort of data structure, then you should be using a document database. I don't know what that is. So MongoDB doesn't support rollback period, right? Like there is no thought of rollback in there. I mean, if they have transactions, right? they have to, right? think so maybe you can't explicitly roll back like you can in a relational database maybe right. it's like implicitly if something fails then it rolls back i don't know i'm not I so clearly we are not mongo yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't know a lot about document databases period so i was just curious because the the thought of not having a transaction scares me because so much happens in that transaction so many things need to be successful for it to commit and the thought of partial committing without all of it being right I can't wrap my head around that. And I think th there are definitely ways, if you have data that has to work successfully together, but you don't have transactions, there are ways that you can architect the application to have more item potent actions, meaning actions that are safe to retry if they don't completely succeed. But you have to build that. Like mm -hmm. if you can't it's lean on the power in. of a transaction, yeah. then you have to make up for it in the application code. And that's a lot of added complexity. So it's not like you just like, I, it, it, I don't know. It just bothers me, I guess, when I don't understand things. It seems so vastly <laughs> different from how I understand them. Because um, even just I, I think about signing up in an, in an account. So like, like a, let's say you have a service, a product service, and you have to register an account. And you have to, I mean, this, is, this mirrors a lot of how we do stuff at work, where we have a user record. And the user record is more of a public facing, but not necessarily a logged in account. And then if you sign up, you get both a user record and an account record. And the account is like where the password actually lives. Those are two different tables for us. And those, we create those inside of a transaction so that if the account fails, the user rolls back as well. Right. And the thing is though, is that we can make a lot of queries against the database that read the user, but don't care about the account because we're not necessarily dealing with a logged in situation. Yeah. So in a document database, if you're co-locating data within a document that is intended to be read together all the time, then in order for something like that to be atomic without transactions, you'd have to essentially store the user and the account in the same document and always read the account out every time you needed to read the user, unless you were like read partial documents, I guess. But can I you even still, read partial documents? I think you can like project. Is that properties. like a view? Huh. Yeah, I, I, I think it's you can say like, get me this object, but only return these properties. Interesting. I really need to learn more about document databases. But the goal, you know, it's still, I, I believe it still has to read the whole thing off of disk. I assume, I'm sure they have lots of magic behind the scenes yeah. that make that more efficient, but I don't know. I guess it's, because all I know is the structure I know, it's hard to, to wrap my brain around different. Well, so, okay. And then, so dovetailing with, one of the other things that the guy said on the podcast, which is that it's harder to work with relational databases because the data you have in your application memory doesn't necessarily match the data that you have in your database. But I also find that to not be true most of the time. Like, Wait, say that again? Like, I think the intent of his statement is that 
your data structures in your application are these like complex data structures, like objects with arrays and other yeah, objects yeah. inside them. And then you have to then map that to a relational database, a flat table pattern. Sure. That's and why so, we have like an object relational mapper, right? Like ORM. But also I, this, I guess this is, and, and this goes back again to your statement about like, what's the right use case for a document database? Even complex structures, I have a lot of things where I'm actually querying for little bits of that data structure. Right. Yep. So it's nice for me to have tables that have just that data, and I don't have to worry about having all kinds of crazy indexes or different serialized versions mm-hmm. of objects. It just, I don't know. I mean, I know people who build document databases have to market document databases, right? So they have to tell you how great it is for all the things that you need to do. But I... The, it's just never connected with me, the idea of using MongoDB. I think there are some, again, some use cases, like we use it at work. We have to store these like just giant arbitrary blobs of JSON that clients will give us, like application clients. But for the most part, I love relational databases. I, I never really feel like I'm being held back by having to have a data table schema. So actually if that's where we want to take this conversation, the places where I feel held back by a relational database is when a table gets to be large enough that it's slowing things down, right? When you get to that, like a couple million rows and you've got 30 plus columns, that's a lot of data. And then a query that feels like it should be fast isn't anymore. Right. And you have to start like, I know MySQL is a little bit weird about this, but you know, I've, I have had to do some query optimizations and you look at the final query and it looks stupid. (laughs) You look at this and you go, all right, I'm going to rewrite this because this, what was this person smoking when they wrote this SQL? But then if you like take the the quote unquote like smart way to write the SQL and you compare it to the stupid way, stupid ways like often many, as we've discussed in the past, many orders of magnitude faster. Well, I think also as I've, As I've had more experience building data-driven applications, one of the things that I've come to learn more recently than I'd like to admit to is that the tables don't have to be as wide as I would have normally done them. So my, like, let's go back to the idea of having a user and a user table. My, my kind of historical preference would be to anytime I have another property that I want to associate with the user, I just add a column to that table. Mm Mm-hmm. And so like I have my user, now they have to have GDPR marketing opt-in. So I'll just add you know, some sort of opt-in, opt-out newsletters, kind of a column. And then they have to have like, I don't know, an address or maybe an address on there or for whatever. Or, or I don't know, like these tables just get wider and wider. And I was listening to a podcast a couple of months ago. And this guy said something about how he's like, you, you, everybody keeps throwing columns on a table. He's like, most of the time you're not reading or like you read that column data, but you don't need it. You don't need it. If you're adding data to a table and you don't need it most of the time, put it in a different table. Yes. Thank you. He's like, he said, said he was was basically saying like the columns in your table, when you read that row, you should be using all those columns more or less. I agree. How is that different than when you're not selecting those columns? I think it's more to do with just the size of the table and the ability to change that table over, over time. Yeah, like when you were talking about the marketing stuff, I'd be like, okay, user marketing table. Like that information needs to live outside of the user table. It needs to right. be its own table so that I don't go pull it. Yeah. So like GDPR just came out, what, like three years ago, two, three years ago. Is that all? Imagine having an application that was running for a decade prior to that. You might have 
hundreds of thousands or millions of records in a user table. And if you had to add GDPR information to it at that point, now you have to migrate this online so you don't have downtime and you have to add a column and do you know all kinds of fun data gymnastics in order to, to do that seamlessly. Or to Carol's point, you could just create a new table for GDPR preferences. Yep. And there's nothing to migrate other than the create table. And then you just start writing to it. And it's like, there's no downtime. There's no super amount of processing on the database. And for the vast majority of queries that you run in the application that read users and don't care one iota about GDPR compliance, they don't get hit with having to read that data off of the record. Because even if you return a record, I mean, sorry, even if you return a subset of columns, you still have to read the whole record off the file system. Or again, there's probably all kinds of magic about yeah. caching and in-memory stuff. The database reads it in memory yeah, parts yeah. of it, yeah. Hmm. So I don't know. Like, I guess I've when people talk about their data model not fitting easily into a relational database, like, again, that's just one of those things. It's never resonated with me. It's never yeah. felt like what... And I'll tell you, like, the few times where I've really wished that I had more of a flexible schema and maybe I'll create a, a text column and then I'll throw some JSON in it, like I always end up regretting it because at some point years later, there's dirty data in that column. The structure of that JSON structure is inconsistent. It's keys change names over time. The casing of the keys in that JSON file have changed over time. And it's like, if I had just had a table that had all the keys that I need, I would know forever and eternity what was in that table. And I would never have to guess or never have to worry about cleaning up dirty data. I Tim, agree. Tim's being awfully either. quiet over there. I don't know if he's got disconnected yeah, or what, but the, I'm surprised he hasn't chimed in to tell us how often <laughs> the, the JSON <laughs> column type is in Postgres. And he's not saying anything yet, so he must be disconnected. Sorry, we he lost it, Tim. But yeah, like, that's, uh, that is the thing that I would say if a week goes by and I haven't heard my CEO say, if we only were on Postgres, then this thing that we're trying to do would be a lot easier. And it's 99% of the time, it's because of JSON, like JSON columns in Postgres. So pros and cons, transactions. Pro. Pro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm... Although I do, I, I don't want to say that transactions are the end-all be-all. I have, over time, tried to rely less on transactions by creating actions that can be run safely mm-hmm. multiple times if they fail. So so like one of the use cases we have a lot at work is deleting kind of the parent of this entity hierarchy. So you can imagine Okay, like cascade delete. Yeah, so so like at work we have this concept of documents and documents have screens and screens have comments and and so if someone goes to delete a document, we have to delete the document and the screens and the comments and like all the old versions of the screens and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I think early on, as I don't want to say naive, but as less experienced developers, we would throw that whole thing in a transaction because we're like, whoa, we got to delete everything. So it has to happen in one transaction. And then it locks up the database because mm-hmm. it takes like 30 seconds to actually delete all that data. And then that's causing transaction locks on other things that are going to that table. And then you can start to rethink and you're like, well, if I delete the less important things first, like I try to delete the comments and the screens first and I delete the document last, then if it fails halfway, the user can still see the document, but it's like half the data is gone. But like, all right, so then they try to delete the document again and now it starts to go through the lesser important things. And you can build ways that can safely run things multiple times that would normally be in a transaction when the transaction is maybe too expensive. But again, like you have to architect your application to do that. Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to the idea like, 
I don't think that I have come across an application that I couldn't, if I wanted to, shoehorn into MongoDB or CouchDB or any of these other, like Cassandra, as long as it's a like a key value store or something like that. Like you can make any application work there. Why can't you make any application work in a relational database? Uh, and if your application is like a MapReduce over a crib, uh, I don't even know what word I was trying to say there over a ridiculously <laughs> large amount of data, like terabytes or petabytes, then yeah, sure. Like there's having a database specifically built for doing that map reduce over a large amount of data is going to be faster than trying to do that in MySQL or pull, God forbid, pulling that into memory and doing <laughs> it in memory. Um, but aside from that, like your run of the mill forms based web application, I feel like any database is good enough. Just get your app working. That's all that matters. And and relational databases are so flexible. To your point earlier about you have data, but then you also have to run reports on that data mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily know what those reports are going to be ahead of time. Like when you're building an application oh, for yeah. the first time, you don't know what it's going to do. Nothing. I mean, you might have an idea, but nothing yep. stays the same and nothing certainly stays the same after users start using it and complaining right. or having feature requests. And now to me, it feels like the relational database should be the default choice because it's the most flexible. Yeah. And that potentially, as your application matures and you see where there are maybe bottlenecks or things that are too difficult to do in a relational schema, like then you can start to choose, I think, a specialized database that handles those types of use cases more efficiently. But it, it, the idea of choosing MongoDB or any of the document database, I'm not trying to pick on MongoDB. That was just, just happens to be the one. The idea of choosing anything that's not relational by default seems like you're backing yourself into a corner. Like you don't need to worry about horizontal scalability that comes with like a easily shardable document database when you're just trying to prove the idea of your product. Yeah. Agree. I, I remember listening to a podcast. This guy was talking about, I think he worked on the Amazon database team and he was talking about DynamoDB. And he was saying how amazing DynamoDB is if you know 100% what your queries are going to look like ahead of time. Mm. But we don't. Like, <laughs> right. He was like, he's like, if you think you can just drop DynamoDB as, in as a replacement of something like a SQL database, he's like, you will be very unhappy because it will not work and it'll be very non-performant or it'll be very expensive. That makes me feel way better because that's always kind of been my thought is that going that way into a document database doesn't seem like where you float into. It's where you would be starting out at. And I've never been in a position where I know what I'm doing up front to start there. So yeah. it's always so ever changing and I never know. So anyway, databases, what's up with that? What's up with those <laughs> things? Okay. Well, I don't have anything else to add. You guys got, you guys done? Yeah. Did, uh, so. Getting that off your chest. Good little info. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Had to get on my soapbox, I guess. Uh-huh. All right. Sad well, we lost Tim because, man. Yeah, Postgres I'm sure he would have been great. Uh, Postgres, Postgres, Postgres. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, then I guess that wraps it up. So this episode of Working Code was brought to you by Postgres. That's Postgres. It's just better than your database. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners like you. If you like what we're doing here on the podcast, you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. New this week, James England. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you. Welcome, welcome. And so to thank our patrons for their support, they all get an invite to our Discord server where we hang out and chat about the podcast and stuff. We have other perks available like early access to new episodes and our after show. And I realized after I said it here earlier, 
I threw out pros and cons for transactions and we did that real quick, but regular listeners to the show probably don't know what that is. In the after show, <laughs> we often tackle like rapid fire topics, pros and cons. We'll just throw something out and you can either do a quick, I'm for it or I'm against it, pros and cons, or we might back it up with some reasoning and some discussion, whatever. So that's what that was when we glossed over that real quick. So if you're interested in more of that, you might be interested in the after. Of course, we need to thank our top patrons, Monty and Peter. Thank you guys so much for your support. And if paying for podcasts isn't your thing, no worries. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. And there are some free ways that you can help us out too. You could share the show with your friends and your coworkers, or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please send us your questions and your show topics on Twitter or Instagram at Working Code Pod, or you can leave us a message at 512-253-2633. That's 512-253-CODE. We'll catch you next week. And until then... Your heart matters. <laughs> Since Tim's not here... <laughs> You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code. Like, oh, who's going to say it? I thought you were like showing off a fly or something. No, I was like, somebody who's got who's going to step up. Cool. I think I think Ben should do it. I think Carol nailed it. He's more like mushy than me. (laughs) He's got a bigger heart. (laughs) He's got a bigger heart than me for sure. Yeah, he said he lost connection. Uh Uh-huh, and he was blaming Riverside, saying it's not his internet connection. He's just so excited for Hamilton, he wanted to go like, go ahead and look (laughs) at his outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's getting dressed up as King George. I love it. I love Hamilton. And it's not because it's my last name. Mm -hmm. It's not only because it's your last name. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I couldn't find my tickets. I was like stressing out today. Because Jason has like season tickets to the Fox. Yeah. And he sold me four tickets of his. Of his oh, thing. nice. And so I'm like searching through my email for Hamilton and so much. I was like, oh, not you, Carol. I don't <laughs> want you. I want my tickets. Give me my tickets. Get out of my way, Carol. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't mean it. <laughs>